lot of empty seats. I guess Chirp Fest was really successful last night, huh? Um, so I made the mistake of taking my kids to Brothers last night right as Chirp Fest was beginning and uh, realized, oh, wait, wrong crowd. Okay. Um, hey, we are studying the book of Acts, and we are in chapter 19, or I'm sorry, chapter 20, the tail end of that chapter. Um, so if you're following along, we're going to dive in with some context to that, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into the message um, of what we're doing here. So, yeah, this is our passage here. And um, so, uh, you know, I couldn't forgive myself if we talked about a location and didn't throw up a map. So let's throw up a map real quick. All right. All right. And the reason I do this, um, and I've said this before, but I really think if we're talking about a location and people, I want you to identify that this is like planet Earth, not Narnia, not uh, something from the Lord of the Rings or uh, Star Wars. But these are real people, real places, real things. So when you read the letters in the scripture, they're real letters from somebody to somebody else. Okay. So, um, oh, the laser point right there. All right. So this is the missionary journey on the third missionary journey. That's what we're on right now. Uh, Paul goes back to some of the same areas. Here's Ephesus. This is where we're going to be at today. Uh, actually, we're going to be right down here, but it's the people of Ephesus. And he spends time there on his third missionary journey. He spends several years there. And when he's there, Paul is teaching them and spending time with them. For several years, he's with them. And a couple, uh, several amazing things, and we don't have time to go into all the context, so please be reading along and read some of these stories. But there's several cool things that are happening there. One, um, he goes first to the synagogues, as he does, but then the Jewish people stir up some trouble. So he goes to the lecture hall there, and he teaches for a couple of years and just teaches the word and teaches the word. And it says all of Asia ends up hearing the gospel because he's there teaching for all that time, right? So he's there doing that. Then there's this really incredible scene where all the magicians in that town, they're starting to come to faith and they're starting to come to know Christ and hear truth. And they come and they have this big book burning thing and they bring all their books together and they burn them. And it's like millions of dollars. If you look at the numbers, it's like millions of dollars in our money that they're just tossing in the fire saying, you know, I'm changing my ways, I'm changing direction, and they're throwing it in the fire. Um, then there's this really cool scene there uh, where this riot happens because there's a, uh, the, the temple to Artemis is there, and there's silversmiths, and the silversmiths are making a lot of money off selling these little statues. You come to town, you worship, you take one of these little silver statues, and you worship it later, right? And, he's, and Paul's telling him, hey, you can't have uh, these little statues, if you made them with your hands, does that really make sense? If you created it and now you worship it, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And so they're losing so much money. They're so upset that they riot and thousands of people show up into the um, arena and they're there and they're going crazy and Paul's wanting to go talk to them and everyone's saying, no, 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 stay out of there. And then this is, I think this is really funny because it shows how kind of like times have changed apathy-wise, but it says they are in there and and they're chanting. At first, they don't even know why they're in there, some of them. But then they start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis. Okay, they do that. And they do that for two hours, it says. Two hours. Now, I've been to Ball State games, and I see the cheerleaders go, hey, Ball State. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, Ball State. And after about the third time, they're like, yeah, whatever, man. This is just lame. And they're on their phones, right, because that's really boring. But for two hours, they're in there passionately chanting for this God of theirs. Okay, so... Here we go. They go from Ephesus. Then he leaves there after those two years, and he does, does this little cycle. He visits everybody over here. He writes to the Romans from Corinth. But you should, the Bereans you've heard about, Athens, Corinth, the letter to the Thessalonians, all these places are places that should be familiar. Philippi is right up here off the map. 
then he comes back around and he's traveling because he believes the Spirit of God has called him back to Jerusalem and he wants to get there by the time Pentecost starts. And so he's traveling back and he's sailing back this way and he actually skips, he doesn't port here, he goes around and does it here because he thinks, if I go into Ephesus, I'm going to get hung up and I'll never make it back in time. You guys know how that is? Sometimes you show up something, you see someone at the mall and you're like, oh man, I don't want to get that in conversation. And you kind of like duck and start looking at some things. to dodge. Well, he's saying, if I get there, I know all these people, I'll never get out of town. And so I'm going to actually come down here, port, and then I'm going to send some vis- somebody up there to the messenger and have them come back and the elders of the church are going to gather with me and I'm going to talk to them. It'd be, it's about 30 miles. So it's like if you're going from Fort Wayne down to Florida and you pass the Muncie exit at 332 and you end up on the south side of Anderson where the uh, horse track and everything is and you stop there and you're like, okay, now I'm going to send someone over to Muncie to get the elders of the church to come talk to me now. Only we drive over and it'd be like an hour time. They, they're by foot running 30 miles up the road and back and bringing and then they're going to have this conversation. And it's a passionate conversation because Paul says, I'm not going to see you again. And so these words that he leaves with them are going to be important words. They're important words because it's his heart to them of what's going on, but they're also important because this is Luke's glimpse into Paul speaking to Christians because all the other words that Luke has told us so far about Paul is to unbelievers, but now it's his voice and his tone to the Christians. And it sounds familiar because it's the, letter, it's the same tone he writes in his letters to them, and so it sounds very familiar, but it's different than what he's sounded like throughout his uh, sermons in the book of Acts. All right, so that's where we're going to be, right there on the, right there on the bank uh, before he heads back. All right, let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for today. Um, I trust that you have something for us. I know this message has been uh, increasingly convicting and challenging to my heart. Um, not so much my message that I'm prepared, but just the, your words and the scripture that you've called us to And so I pray for each one of us as your spirit is moving and working in this room. Um, You've called us here for a reason. It's no accident um, that we're here together today. And we thank you for our time together. We pray that your word would go out um, in a way that challenges our hearts. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. All right. So I would say... The, the message that Paul sends with them is, is this. This is maybe the theme. And it's what he says to the, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. This is his message that he lays out to these folks in his final words. And um, that may seem a little weird um, because... Um, we have this false humility that we would never say that, hey, look at me, and I'm imitating Christ, and so look at my life. And so we'd say, oh, I wouldn't say that. That sounds a little arrogant, um, and I don't want to draw that kind of attention to myself. But we do post on social media, right, our dessert and where we're at with our friends and we're on vacation and we're with this famous person, and we post all those other things. Um, so there's kind of a false humility there. But what Paul's saying, and he's urging them, is something that um, we shouldn't be... Um, Surprised by in the in the tone of the scripture because Luke tells us in Luke six four in the Gospels that Jesus says to them, he said, a student is going to be like their teacher, and that should happen, right? So disciple just means teacher. So when Jesus calls twelve people to him and says, hey, I want you to come and be with me, that's a cultural thing at that time. I want you to come and learn from me and study, and I, I'm going to teach you with my words, but you're going to catch more from my life too, by just being with me. And we're going to travel together and we're going to be together. And with Jesus, we're like, yeah, that makes sense that he did that. 
But then when he gets at the end of his life and he's about to go to the cross, right? And they're like, whoa, hold up, Jesus. Maybe you don't understand the plan here. Like, we're going to kind of be together for a while. And he said, no, this is the plan. I've been showing you about laying down my life this whole time. And now I'm going to go to the cross. I want to show the ultimate picture of laying down your life for others, right? So he demonstrates that. And we have no, no qualms with that. And the idea culturally is that they would go and be like Christ. That's why they're called Christians, little Christ. Um, that's what they call them. It was kind of a mocking thing to call them. But that's what they were trying to be, right? So when Paul says all he is saying is like, listen, I'm being like my teacher. And as I'm trying to be like my teacher, I'm your teacher. Be like me. Be imitators of my life. And so here's how he talks about it as we work through this passage. And we'll break it down in a couple different ways. Uh, we'll start with uh, verse 17. So here it is. Uh, Malthus. He sent to Ephesus, called them, the elders of the church, down to him. And when they had come, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm bound in spirit, and I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit has solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. All right, so this is Paul, and this is Paul's conviction, we'll call it that here, in terms of this part of the message. So Paul comes and he's saying, hey, listen, when I was with you, you know, you know my life well. I was there and I was teaching, I was teaching all things that are profitable. And what would that be? Well, he says in the scripture, in 2 Timothy 3.16, at the end of his life, he says, all scriptures God breathed, right? And it's, it's profitable for rebuking and correcting and training so that the man of God or the woman of God would be fully equipped for every good work. So what was he teaching? He's teaching them the scripture. That's what he was pouring into them. And that was his conviction. He's passionately doing it. And he says, you know that I was being persecuted. You know what was going on in my life. And yet I was teaching publicly and in your homes. And I was passionately about this. And I was teaching a couple things. Whether you were Jew or whether you're Greek, I was teaching you repentance Towards God, so repentance just simply means turning, right? For whatever you're involved with and repenting towards God. It's a reversal, it's a turnaround. But then, not just passively this, but in faith in Jesus Christ. And holding on in faith to Jesus Christ as your Lord. As your Lord. So let's talk about that for a minute. What does that look like for them? That he was with tears in their homes wrestling with this stuff. So what does it look like? If you worship at the temple of Artemis and there's temple prostitutes and you go up there, what does it look like to repent from the life of saying Artemis was the, they, they believe she was the goddess of all life. And so if you look at the statues of Artemis, she has like, I don't know, 50 breasts on the front of her uh, because the whole idea was fertility and life and life giving, right? And so that was the idea of her. And so we're like, this is, the, this is the God of life. And he's like, no, that actually isn't the God of life. That's a statue 
that you're worshiping, and it's really twisted that people come to worship, and what they do is have sexual actions with prostitutes as part of their sacrifice. There's something really messed up about that. And so if you think that brings you life, it brings you death. Because if you think about the prostitute in that situation, how much life is she getting out of that? At least true life, at least true fulfillment, other than a temporary moment of thinking, I'm serving something bigger than myself, which happens to be a statue of a woman with a bunch of breasts, right? So is it life to her? Is it life to the worshiper that comes and says, I'm going to sacrifice by having sexual relations with this person? Maybe a temporary satisfaction of some kind of twisted thing that I've made a sacrifice, but then you walk away, and is that life-giving? No. So he says, repent and turn from that and come to Christ, the one who says, I've come and I've come to give life and give it abundantly to you. I'm the life giver, the creator of life. He starts with the Old Testament because when he's talking about the scripture, he's teaching out of the Old Testament. So he's starting at the beginning and talking about how God created all things. And if he created you and all things, then he probably knows what's going to give you life. That's why he writes in the scripture in Ephesians, when he writes back to them later this letter, he talks about God's created them for good works from the beginning of time, right? So in that, that's what you're repenting and turning to faith in what? Faith in all of these things that I'm teaching you about Christ and how he loves you and cares for you in that, right? So if you're that temple prostitute, let me tell you about how God really wants to treat you and look at you and view you, right? And if, what if you're the magician and you're burning those books, right? And you're pouring that stuff. In. If you're that person, and I'm grappling with you. I don't know everything about it. We can talk about the dark arts and all that stuff. But I would say this. If you're down there doing magic tricks, and this is what I'm seeing with the other people in the Scripture are doing some of these things, what are you doing? You're the, you're the show, right? You've come to watch me perform, right? And if that's where I'm getting my satisfaction, I get momentary fulfillment. You're coming, and you're coming to watch me, and I'm getting something about being the entertainer here. But how much life does that give you and for how long? Let me talk to you about the person who gives true life, fulfilling life, forever life, right? What if you're the silversmith in that situation? It's the family business. We've always been silversmiths. We make a lot of money being silversmiths. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to stop doing this and turn to you? What does my family think about that? What is my livelihood? What am I going to do for work now, right? You almost see the, whether you're the magician with the book or whether you're silversmith trying to set aside, it's almost like, oh, you can pry this from my hands. I'm not sure if I want to get rid of this or not. He said, let me talk to you about the true you. And he's laboring daily with them in their homes and crying and wrestling with them. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. Not just with the Greeks, but with the Jews, right? It says he did it with the Greeks and Jews. The Jews were probably much more religious, but I have good works. I do this stuff all the time. I do all this stuff, right? He's like, yeah, I did too. Remember, I was going headlong killing Christians because I believe so much and what I believe in. And it was dead, it was empty, and Christ stopped me in my tracks and said, let me talk to you about what I really want for your life, right? So all of these things are part of it. It's repenting from one thing that's really not as fulfilling as we think anyway, and we turn to life-giving Lord and make the Lord the Lord of our lives. And so let me just bring this today, because whether you fit into any of those things, I'm telling you, here on this campus, I know what life, and it's not just this campus, right? But I know when I was here what it was like. Um, and I, I can see it every day. I live by the village. So I see this, you know, these young ladies walking home from the bars, stumbling. They can hardly stay up. And these, all these helpful gentlemen taking her back, right? And like, I, I know where that's going. And I know where it's going because the next morning on Saturday when I'm walking out, walking my dog or going down to get a cup of coffee in the village, I see her walking home by herself now in the same dress with her hair all frazzled, by herself, cold and alone. And she, she's different, right? Something feels different about that. 
right? And I, I'm not shaming her. I know what it was like when I was here in college. I remember waking up my freshman year in a closet on campus, not knowing whose house I was in, and walking around campus trying to find my car because I didn't remember where I'd parked it the night before when I was intoxicated. I know what that's like, right? But then I also know, like, coming to know Christ and saying, oh, yeah, I'm saved from that. And then I get to grad school, and I'm making a 4.0, and all of a sudden, like, the 4.0 is what I needed to make. And that was really important to me. And, you know, the enemy has ways to get our lives fixated on all kinds of little idols that we can say, this is going to bring me satisfaction in life. And Paul's saying, no, there's one person who can do that, the creator of life who loves you and wants to be the Lord of your life. All right, let's read on this next part. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to me, says Paul, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord to testify solemnly of the gospel of grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. And I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds to the church of God, which he purchased in his own blood. So I just want to talk real quick here in this passage about a couple words that stand out to me. This thing of Paul, I'll call this Paul's identity. Like, where does he see himself? It says, I do not consider my life worth of any account. And I want to talk to that for a minute because I think Paul says that phraseology a lot. And sometimes we latch onto that and we're already feeling self-deprecated in our world that we live in. And then we hear him say that like, yeah, see, I have no value. Yeah, yeah. So I need Jesus because I'm worthless. And yeah, he had to pay because I'm so bad he had to die. And so I'm so bad. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the contrary. He says, I am so valuable. I'm so valuable beyond my comprehension. Because what does it say later on? It says in verse 28, this church that he purchased with his blood. With his blood. It's not like, yes, he had to die for you. It's like, he sees so much value in you, his creation. You're so precious that if he put you up here on stage and said, how much is this person worth? How, how many of you really want to sign up for that? All right, let's, let's get you up in front of everyone and talk about your worth, right? He does that, and he says, I'll tell you how much they're worth. It's worth my life, my blood. I will purchase you. I want you to be mine. But I don't want, you're not a discounted product, you're not, you know, broken goods. You are cherished goods, and I will give my very self to you, my very blood for you. You're valuable beyond recognition. So when he says, I consider my life worth nothing, he's not talking about your, he's not valuable. He's saying, I'm valuable beyond comprehension. But then it's more in the tone where he says in Philippians 2, right? He writes this letter to Philippians. Paul writes this letter, and he says this, consider this. Be like Christ who, though he was God, did not consider that something to be grasped or held onto, but instead he emptied himself to death, even death on a cross. He said he had so much value, but he laid it all down for others. That's what Paul's saying. He's not saying God's not valuable and so he could just lay himself down. He's saying he's really valuable. He's saying you're really valuable. You're his creation. He, he made you. He loves you. He redeemed you. He cares about you. He wants what's best for you. You're really valuable. 
And he's saying that of his own life. I'm so, I'm valuable, but I consider it nothing. So it's not devaluing him, it's elevating Christ. He said, as valuable as I am, Christ is so much more valuable. And I lay it all down for him. And how does he get that? Because he's falling. He's imitating Christ. Christ was so valuable, but he laid it all down for others. He's like, that's what I'm doing. That's what I've been doing for you in your town. I've tried to do it every day. I tried. I've worked so hard to do it in front of you every day. And so when I leave here and you don't see me again, do that unto others. Do that unto the others. Let's keep reading. Verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all those among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish you, each one of you, with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Okay. So this part here, I would say Paul's guardianship, right? So he's talking to these elders, and he's saying to these elders, now listen, when I leave here today and I sail away, there are people who are going to come in behind me, and they're going to tell you all sorts of lies, and they're going to lead you away. And they're not going to come up and say great big lies that are real blatant. They're going to kind of woo you away, right? Um, and he's saying this to the elders, right? He, he's saying it to the leaders, the guardians, the shepherds. He said, there's this flock that God cares about, and someone's going to come in, and you need to be a guardian over these people like I've tried to be, because I'm going to be gone, and I want you to care for them. I want you to be telling them they're valuable, you're loved, you know, Christ, you know, the grace of the gospel, and I want you to keep telling them and telling them and telling them and battle against those other messages because someone's going to come in and lead them away. It sounds like what Peter says, right? But Peter says the devil's, you know, the enemy is like prowling around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. It's not like, hey, there's this guy in red PJs and he's going to take a feather and kind of mess with your ear to kind of like mess with you. No, he wants to do devour you. And he said they're going to come in from the outside. And how does he know that? It's because remember when we talked about Galatians, he went and he did his first mission trip to Galatia and then went home. And by the time he got home, they were already already led astray and he was writing a letter back to them saying you foolish Galatians like how quick does this happen like you gave your life to Christ in faith and you're already depending on your works so he's seen this happen it's 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 habitual it keeps going on because that's the way these things work but then here's the here's the uh, troubling part right he says some of them are going to be among you you're not just watching from the outside, you're watching from the inside because there's going to be, these are the leaders. And he said, some of you, someone from amongst you is going to rise up and lead them away. That happens all the time in churches. That's happened in this church where a small group leader has gone astray and led others with them and it causes trouble in their lives and pain and sorrow, right? And it happens. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm asking you to be the shepherd of them. So even going back up, to the verse prior where it says, 
I'm innocent of every man's blood. When he says that, that's the same imagery. That's imagery from Ezekiel. And remember, he's teaching them the scripture all the way through. It's on his mind. So Ezekiel, he says, uh, God talks about the people of Israel. And he says, I'm putting a watchman before you. What's a watchman? It's someone who's sitting on the gate of the city. And he's a watchman. He's looking. If a military comes in, you need to cry out to those outside the walls and say, hey, you're in danger. Get inside. And if you're on the inside trying to get out, don't go outside. It's dangerous out there, right? That's the watchman mentality. And so when Paul said, I'm innocent of blood of every man, there's a really like actual physical reality to the consequences of our sin. And he's saying, I'm innocent of that because I've tried to tell everyone I've ever spoken to in this context, I've taught it and I've taught it and I've taught it. You need to beware of the consequences of sin, right? So your blood's not on me. I've been trying to teach that. Now he's telling these leaders, you need to have that same mentality. You need to have the same mentality. Christ is a shepherd. We're his under-shepherds. This is the flock. and you need to, We need to be doing that amongst one another. All right, let's keep reading. It says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have ministered uh, to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. And so he talks about this. It's the same thing he says to the Thessalonians when he writes them, and there's some people who are being lazy with their work ethic. And he says, listen, we were your model. We came and we worked hard, and we, you know, we didn't ask anybody for bread without paying for it or working for it in the process. So again, he's setting out the work ethic even to these guys. And so, so Paul, in the midst of it, said, I've been your model in many of ways, right? I've looked over you. I watched over you. I taught you the word. I, I appealed to you to... to Hold Christ as your Lord and the gospel of grace, and I worked hard amongst you doing it, right? And then we have this, um, this piece uh, towards the end here, um, and it says this. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him grieving especially over the word in which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship, okay? So now I hear people say this of Paul and of Jesus too. Like people talk about, oh, the red letters, you know, because we read things in the voices that are already in our head, right? So if you have authority figures in your life that are really harsh, that's how you're going to read the tone of something. So I hear people say, I can't even read the scripture because the, the, some Bibles, the, the red letters of Jesus, or the words of Jesus are in red letters, right? So they're like, I can't even read the red letters. I feel like God's yelling at me. Um, I think you're reading it with the wrong tone if that's what you're getting out of. But I hear people talk about Paul. I can't read Paul's letter. He's so arrogant. He seems like he comes across so arrogant. And so I would say this. Um, one, the way he's appealing to these people and saying, here's what I've done. I want you to do the same. I've been imitating Christ. You imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? And so if that comes across arrogant, I would say, I wonder how the people he was speaking to felt about that. I wonder about the people who are reading these letters, how they felt about Paul. And I'd say this is a nice little picture of what that looks like, right? He's laid down his life, and he's leaving. They're like, I'm not going to see you again. And they're weeping, and they're crying, and they're kissing him, right, and embracing him. They don't want him to go. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to not ever see him again. They are affectionate with him. 
he has been their shepherd of this flock, and he's nurtured in that way. And I would say that would be true, you know, as we, and I said this a few weeks ago, right? I believe that there's going to be a time and not the far future where we're going we're to raise up some people here and we're going to send them off. And when we do, there's going to be time like this because they're going to have impacted your life and you're not going to want to see them go. And we are going to be crying and caring for them. And, and we're going to probably see them right, still. But they know that they're not going to see him. Because one, Paul's either going to go and he's going to suffer and die in Jerusalem, um, or he's already said, if I don't do that, I'm going to Rome because I have another mission that God has for me. So if I make it through Jerusalem and I live, then I'm going to try and go to Rome. And I'm, but either way, I'm, probably, I'm not planning on seeing you folks again because I have something else that God's calling me to. And I'm going to do that with the same dedication that I've done this. So I came to Ephesus in, in faith, and I didn't know I was going to stay here three years, but I did, and so I gave it everything I had. But now God's calling me somewhere else, and I'm going to give it everything I have wherever he calls me now. And, and that's the process. But, but there's affection and caring. I, I kind of, I hope it's Neil that we send out, only because I really want to see you guys all cry and kiss him. Um, because that's how we'll feel towards him. So, all right. Okay. Um, I want to pull this back together. So now, I, let me say this. When you guys read the letter of the Ephesians, okay, the, when you read that now, I want you to think of this, because we tend to read through these different letters as if they're totally detached. But this is what he's writing back to these people about eight years later. He's writing back to them, and those words mean something based on all that we're talking about. And so I want you guys to, to think about that in that context. But let's um, look at Ephesians 5.1 here. Um, it says, this is what he writes to them uh, in Ephesians, but he writes them later. Be... Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. That's his calling. That's his heart towards him. That's what he's beseeching them to do in the process. And the reason I said at the beginning that this is and in my prayer that this has been a hard one for me because I tell you what, um, as a leader in this church, my goodness, I don't, I don't know that I feel comfortable saying to all of you, follow me, follow my example. Look how much I'm like Christ. Um, I mean, that's just the reality. I think this calls me to a great, when I read through this and when I've been meditating it on it this week, I just think, oh my gosh, this is so convicting. Could I leave someplace after a few years and say, listen, look at my life over the last three years. Do that. Do what I've done over the last three years. I don't know that I could do that. That's convicting, right? And this particular verse is really convicting because it draws it beyond just like generically, oh, yeah, if you're in my small group, did I unpack your life? Um, because that's probably, you know, I failed there for sure. But this, what follows this is the, the message about marriages. And what comes after this is saying, husbands, lay down your life like Christ did for the church. Die to yourself for your wife. I think, oh, my goodness. Could I say this of my marriage? Could I say this of my children, you know, and how they feel about me? This calls me to a much deeper sense of what God uh, desires for my life. Am I a disciple of Christ? And if I'm a disciple of Christ, am I becoming more like Christ to the point where I can say, look at my life. Isn't it like my teachers? So I have a couple of challenge questions for you because that's what we've been doing each week. Um, Take time this week to ponder these questions. Who are you imitating? Who in your life are you looking to that you're imitating? Um, These folks were 
Paul was imitating Christ. These folks were imitating Paul and so forth. So if, if you're imitating him, who are they imitating? Like, who are, the, who are they trying to be like? Who are they trying to become in the process? Um, and then um, along with those two questions, then, is that who you want to become? You know, if you're looking at them, is that who you want to become? But if you're looking at who they're following, is that who you want to become? Look at where they are down the road and, you know, and who their idols are and who they're wanting to be. I'd really spin that out in your life. Is that the direction I want to be? Maybe it's a business person, you know, or someone in your field academically, and you're like, yeah, I'm striving to be like this person. But I would look at their, their world and say, is that really it? Is that what I'm aiming for? Um, you know, maybe it's your friends that you're hanging out with and the things that you're doing and you want to impress them and you want to be like them and you don't want to be left out of what they're doing. But I would stop and think, like, is that really what I want? Is that what I want at the end of the day? So I'd ask yourself these questions and then come back to these scriptures and think about, am I trying to follow folks and be with folks who are following Christ? And Paul says in Colossians, he says, uh, our lives are hidden in Christ. And then he refers to Christ, he says, Christ, who is my life, he says. Um, you know, if we could grab a hold of that, <laughs> that sentiment that Christ is our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Um, thank you that you call us to good things. Thank you that you call us beyond uh, even what we um, know or understand of ourselves. You want even bigger and better things for us. Lord, that you want for um, that, that young woman who I talked about, um, you want her to be cared for. You want her to be cherished. You want her to be protected. You want her to be walked home. You want her to be um, sh shielded and guarded in the process. You want to love her. You want her identity to be so rich in the goodness of who you've created her to be. Lord, might we understand that? And as men, I, the men walking her home in that story, you want them to be bold and courageous and protectors. You want them to use their strength not for evil but for good. You've called us all to different things, but Lord, you've called us to dignity as your children. You've called us, and, and when Paul writes back to these people in Ephesus, he just goes on and on about how they're adopted children. That they've been brought into your family, God. Would we see ourselves as your precious, desired, sought-after, pure children who you bought with your own precious blood and that we have great value and there'd be no greater purpose for our life to lay down that and follow you for the sake of others. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.